Bible and turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, last time I'll be saying that to you for a while. Turn to the Gospel of John with me. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 5 and verse 6, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's been a joyous privilege, week in and week out, to walk carefully through John's gospel. One text at a time over the last three or so years. We've beheld the glory of the Lord as it has been revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. We've heard in this gospel the words of Jesus correct our wrong thoughts of God and of His Son. We've had our hearts filled with hope and comfort as we've studied the miraculous signs and the powerful statements of Jesus as recorded by John. Our belief in Jesus as our Messiah and as our Savior has been built and bolstered one text at a time. Our fortress of faith has had the stones of truth carefully placed by this glorious book. It's been a life-changing experience for me. I pray and I trust it's been a life-changing experience for our church family as well. Every week we've been in the process, sometimes imperceptibly and sometimes very noticeably. We've been in the process of being sanctified as we gaze upon our Savior and our change from one degree of His glory to another. We come this morning, sadly to me anyways, the last text in John's Gospel for us to consider. If you were writing the Gospel of John, you might want to finish the book in a different way. You might want to go out with a bang. Maybe one last miraculous sign of Jesus or or one last authoritative teaching by our Lord that would just captivate audiences world wide for all time and every generation. Or maybe one last expression by Jesus of of loving rescue for a a weak and and sickly sinner. You know, like the blind man in John 9. Maybe another story like that. That would really be a great way to finish, don't you think? Or how about the Samaritan woman in John 4? There there certainly are other stories like that that John could tell us and, and whet our appetite again with the, the mercy and love and compassion and wisdom of our Savior. How about that, John? How about we end that way? But, but no, he's going to go out with Peter. A conversation with, with Peter. Really, Lord, with, with Peter? Can, can, we, can we talk about somebody different than Peter? You know, the same one who declared in chapter 13, you know, you're going to die, but I'll, I will be faithful to you and I will die with you if I have to. Setting himself up above all the other apostles and, then, and we know clearly what he did then on the night of Jesus' trial in the courtyard just outside of the the proceedings, he denied our Lord three different times, reverting back to his old way of life, deception and covering over and even cursing as he denied our Lord. We're going to talk about that, Peter. 
to end this good book. Well, how grateful we are and ought to be, and I hope you will be by the end, for the Spirit of God moving the Apostle John to write these words for us. Instead of that one last miracle or that one last powerful teaching, we have one last question that pierces Peter's soul and pierces to ours as well. It's a penetrating and a purifying question. It's a a question that strikes at the core of every issue in our relationship to God and in our relationship to others. It's a question of restoration and of forgiveness. It's a, a question of conviction and of commission to serve. What is the question? It is, do you love me? John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the minutes that lay ahead of us to dive deep into this text and to have your Holy Spirit take the truths and apply them as healing salve to our wounded souls. We confess to you the apathy of our love for you. We bring before you the brokenness of our own arrogance and our own self-determined and self-dependent ways. Father, frankly, we've had enough of that. We're full to the brim of our own selves. So we repent of that in this moment and we plead with you to fill us with a high and holy view of your Son. To see that his infinite worth and glory is compelling to us to love him in every way with every breath and every faculty and every minute and every exercise of our person. So Lord, would you capture us with Christ once again? 
and compel us to love you in response to your love for us. Only you could accomplish this, and when you do, may it be to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This last chapter of John's gospel is a fitting bookend to his first chapter. In that first chapter, the prologue, that first word, the word before the word, he told us how the word became flesh. Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and how in the word we have seen the glory of God revealed to us. He told us in the prologue how grace and truth have been revealed to us through Jesus and that how Moses brought us the law, but Jesus brought us grace upon grace. Those first 18 verses of John's gospel form the the theological foundation upon which to build the life and the record of Jesus for us. We come this morning to the last part of the last 25 verses of his gospel, the, the epilogue as it were. And he wants to demonstrate the truths that he laid before us in the prologue. So He told you this is who Jesus is, theologically speaking. He's the life and the light of men. He's grace upon grace. He's grace and truth. And now he's demonstrating that to you one final time in his last conversation recorded in John's Gospel with the Apostle Peter. We saw that his coming to the disciples when they were fishing. We saw this last week that it was a a final grand display of Jesus as the life and the light of men as he poured out grace and truth upon them even in, uh, in their despondency and their uncertainty as they waffled between following him and going back to their old way of life. And now he has a conversation with Peter in which he's going to shower upon him more and more and more grace. And this is so like our Lord Jesus. And this is what you need this morning, is more of his grace showered upon your heart and your soul. Peter had made big promises to the Lord. He had made big promotions of his character in front of the other apostles. And then he had failed miserably when the ladder built by his own pride had fallen out from underneath him and he came crashing back down to the reality of his own lack of faith and love for the Lord. Three times in the courtyard, he had denied knowing the Lord, even cursing himself, saying, there's no way I know him. And now three times in this final conversation, Jesus is going to restore him and say, do you Love me. Three times he'll be commissioned. Feed my sheep. Beloved, this is grace upon grace. This is making beauty out of ashes. This is taking distraught, helpless sinners and making them useful by your own power. This is our Lord and his kindness to us. This is how John concludes his gospel, pointing us to the grace of Christ to restore us and commission us and guide us all the way safely home from this day until our final day. He's written this book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in His name. And now He finishes the book and says, you continue on in that faith by loving Him. By loving the Lord Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the defining characteristic of the Christian life. It's the the north star of our relationship to God. It is that we love Him because we have been loved by Him. These verses move along with that repeated question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? That's the 
the mirror we're going to raise before our own souls this morning and assess the depths of our inner man. Do I love Him? Do I love Jesus? It's the central question for the Christian life. It's also a compelling and a clarifying question. And it's lastly a Christ-magnifying question. Do you love me? It's the central question. Why is it such? Well, consider how Jesus handles Peter in the scene here by the Sea of Galilee in verses 15 through 17. They just finished breakfast and Jesus now hones in on Peter and knows he's primed for a conversation. Which, By the way, just on a side note, a, a practical instruction for everyday living, there's something to food preparing us for meaningful conversation. And there's something to write about the church family regularly and repeatedly giving themselves to fellowship around food, which then leads itself to meaningful, deep conversation. There's something just built into our DNA, both physically and spiritually, to be ready to talk about important matters when we've been blessed with a meal together. That's exactly what our Lord does here with with His disciples. He's shown them hospitality, and now He enters into the conversation with Peter, and certainly he could have done otherwise, right? In verse 7, when Peter showed up on the beach after swimming from the boat, he could have said, hey, Peter, how's it going? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? No, he waits in wise discernment until breakfast is over for this most important interaction. It's unclear if Jesus and Peter started walking together after breakfast and separated themselves from the disciples, and this is a private conversation, or If after the conversation in verses 15 through 19, they started walking and then Peter looks back and sees John following and asks about John's future. I tend to think it's a a public interaction by Jesus with Peter in front of the other disciples because his denial was public. And I think they all need the, the benefit of knowing that Jesus has restored Peter in a threefold way to a very public out front ministry of the apostles. And we have to see here, obviously, the wise compassion of our Savior as he deals with Peter in this moment. He asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice what he doesn't ask Peter. Do you now confess me? Peter, are you now loyal to me? Peter, will you now serve me? Peter, will you now commit yourself to the office I have bequeathed to you, the office of apostle? And evangelist, he doesn't ask Peter, do you fear me more than these? Will you be loyal to me from here on out? No, he says, Peter, do you love me? This is the central question for Peter and for you. You probably noticed that there are some variations in the three questions. Some of that you can pick up just by reading your English translation. Some of it's in the original And it isn't necessarily translated differently in the English. In the first question, Jesus asked, do you love me more than these? But in the next two questions, he simply asked, do you love me? So what are the these that Jesus is referring to in the first question? I told you last week, I think it's a reference to the fishing equipment, to the boat and the nets, and even to the fish that they had just caught. I think that's fitting with the context around and where Jesus engages them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They've returned to their former way of life. They went back to what they could control. As we're all prone to do when we're waiting on God to show up and 
and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And as we wait, we're, we're prone and tempted to go do what we can do. Control what we think we can control. And this is Jesus showing up when they didn't catch fish all night by His kind providence. To say to them and to confront them again, as we covered last week, you can't control that either, can you? Will you now follow me? Do you now love me more than these? The boat and the nets and the fish. But these could also exegetically refer to the other disciples. In other words, Jesus could be saying, do you love me more than you love them? I don't think that's a fitting, just in context, way to ask the question. But he could also be saying, do you love me more than these men love me? Which in the broader context also fits, doesn't it? Because Peter had said just a few days before on the evening of the Last Supper, though everyone else denies you, I will not deny you. Though everyone else betrays you, I will not betray you. Though you're going to die, Jesus, I will stay faithful to death. I will die with you. And so he had declared supreme love then, right? Supreme loyalty then to Jesus. So maybe this is Jesus saying in front of everybody who heard him say that, Peter, now do you love me more than these men love me? There's also a public reinstatement by Peter as he answers that question. Notice how he answers. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, you know I love you more than these. I mean, I had that little slip up, but I do love you more than these. I'm still as arrogant as I was before in my loyalty to you. No, he, he simply says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. He's a humble and broken man. His fall has knocked him to the ground and he's still there. And he simply says, you know that I love you. So what are the these? Is it the fishing equipment or the comparative love of the other disciples? And I think it's ambiguous on purpose. I think Jesus intentionally lets it refer to the whole scene. It's yes is the answer. It's both, I think. Peter, do you love me more than the fishing equipment? Do you love me more than the former way of life? Do you love me more than these other men do? It's restorative to Peter. Do you love me? Also, a difference in the words that Jesus uses in the Greek for love in his questions and in Peter's answer. So the first one is, do you love me, agapao? Peter answers and says, I love you. Yes, I phileo you. Agapao is generally thought of in in Greek, as the self-sacrificing, the, the noblest of loves. Phileo is thought of as the love of brotherly affection, kind of down a notch from agape love. And some people like to make big difference and, and make a big point of that difference in the text. And I have in the past made that distinction and harped on it before, but I think there's not really exegetical reason to do that. Because as the text goes on, Jesus says again in the second question, do you love me? Agapao, Peter says, I love you, phileo. And then in the third question, Jesus says, do you phileo? Do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, I phileo, love you. And so there's really no distinction, I don't think, in the words that are being used to report what Jesus said and how Peter responded. And, and we see this in how John uses the Greek language throughout his gospel. He often uses synonymous Greek words interchangeably in explaining a scene. In fact, he does that in our text with other words. So when he talks about tending my sheep and feeding my sheep and feeding my lambs, he uses different words both for the, the tending and the feeding and for the lambs and for the sheep. And we could make a big deal out of that distinction. I don't think that's the point. 
I think what Jesus is doing is commissioning him to be a shepherd under the authority of Christ to the lambs he's entrusted to him. And so he's simply asking Peter, do you love me? And Peter is saying, yes, Lord, you know I love you. You notice how Jesus repeats Peter's old name three times. Simon, son of John. He has not called him that since chapter 1. When he first came to Jesus, brought by Andrew, his brother, and as he approaches Jesus, Jesus says in John 1.42, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. He renamed him in their first interaction. And now here at the end, in his last conversation recorded in the Gospel of John, he's asking him, Simon, son of John. Isn't he through his use of Simon's old name convicting Simon of his old pattern of life? Isn't he saying to Simon, didn't you go back to your old way on the night of your betrayal? Didn't you use your deceit and deception and betrayal of me like you did before coming to me the first time? And now he's saying, will you renounce that old way, renounce that old name once again, and Peter, do you love me? Did you also notice that Peter, when he answered, he answered every time by appealing to the omniscience of Jesus. Certainly none of us know the depths of our own hearts as well as we might think we do. But what joy there ought to be in our heart when the question is asked, do you have enough faith? Well, I don't know. Are you courageous enough? I'm not sure. Are you following Jesus clearly and faithfully in all things? Well, no, and I need to improve. But do you love Jesus? If you know Christ and you're saved by His grace, your answer is, yes, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. He appeals three times to the omniscience of Jesus. And essentially, he's asking Jesus, why are you asking me? Lord, you know this. Why, why are we going through this three times? And we know it's not for Jesus' benefit because he already knows. It's for Peter's benefit. He's forcing Peter to deal with the central issue. He's piercing Peter's heart with the question, which is what questions do. They prick the conscience. They open up the soul. Accusations close the spirit and shut down conversation and keep you from having meaningful interaction over deep issues. But Jesus leads the way here with a question and opens up Peter's heart to him and pierces him to the point of admitting, yes, Lord, I love you. And by the question, Jesus is cutting to the, the core of the issue in Peter's life. See, the core problem is also the, the core remedy. The core problem is that he did not love Jesus as he ought to have. The remedy is he must now love Jesus as he should See, Peter denied the Lord on that night because he loved self and safety and a good reputation in the face of others. He, he loved those more than Jesus. He had gone back to fishing because he, he loved doing something he could control more than he loved waiting for his Lord to appear. He, he loved other things more than Jesus. And so the central issue on Peter's life and heart is, do you love Jesus? This is also the central issue in your discipleship too. Do you love Jesus? The central question of your growth in the Lord. This is the, the great commandment given by Jesus, right? 
when asked, what's the greatest commandment of the law? He responded and said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So the core of your struggle in this Christian journey of following Jesus is going to be in those two categories, don't you think? In some way, you're going to be able to trace all of your difficulties, all of your sin issues, all of your rebellion problems back to to that core heart problem of loving God and of loving others as a way to love God. And so Peter is confronted mercifully by Jesus and and he says to him, do you love me? It's a central question. It's also a compelling question. If Peter answers that question with an honest yes, then the reality is his love for Jesus would push him into obedient service. In other words, this tells us the nature of the love that Jesus is asking about. It's not a love of of mere affection, of mere professed devotion. It's not a love of mental capacity where you assess the worthiness of Jesus and the loveliness of Jesus, and you say mentally, yes, Jesus is worthy of my mental association and love. No, this is a compelling question. If you love Jesus as he is asking, then it is pushing you forward into obedient service. This love will not leave you stagnant nor still. This is how Jesus responds to Peter all three times. He presents him with a a present active imperative command. It's an ongoing reality for Peter. He says to Peter three times, Since you love me, feed my lambs. Since you love me, tend my sheep. Since you love me, feed my flock. You see how Jesus makes this instantaneous and unavoidable link between love and action. Peter's love for the Lord must compel him forward to obey this call to shepherd God's people. This love is not self-generated. It's not sourced in Peter. But it's reciprocal. It comes out of the love given to him by God. In other words, Jesus is saying, as I have loved you, do you love me? And yes, Lord, you know I do. Then do my ministry. Serve my flock. John will say in his first letter, 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. This is what Jesus said in the upper room back in John 15, verses 9-10. through 10. This is the abide in Christ passage. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Build your house there. Reside there. Create a life there. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How do I build a house in the love of God? You keep His commandments. You obey Him. And then you abide in His love. He goes on to say, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. For Peter, that meant he was to feed and shepherd Christ's flock. But this establishes for all believers of all time an undeniable and unalterable pattern for those who love and follow Christ. If we love Him, we must serve Him by serving His people. It's relatively easy to profess love for Jesus all day long. To get your Jesus jam on on the way to work. Get pumped up to love God and 
confess through song that you love Him today. But a good test of that profession is, are you loving His people? Are you obedient to what He's called you to do and be as it relates to His people? Active in His service within His body. Now you also, by the way, can be active in service absent of love. Right? This is Ephesians 2. This is what Jesus brought to the church, or excuse me, Revelation 2, to the church at Ephesus. He said to them, you're active. You're doing everything right. Your doctrine's right. Your service is is renowned around the world. There's, There's nobody that's your peer as a local church. But I have this against you. And, and if you don't do this, you're going to die. I'm going to remove my lamp. Your church is going to die. I'm going to remove your lampstand from you if you don't correct this. That's how central of an issue this is. Well, what did he have against them? You've left the love you had at first. Because you can be active all day long. You can, you can give your life. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the, the tongues of angels and of men but have not love, I'm a, a tinkling gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm worthless. I'm just a... A noise of brass. Annoying at that. I can give my life in sacrifice, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3. I can be burned by the fire, but if I have not love, it is a, a waste. Meaningless and pointless. You see, this is a, a compelling question, not only for you to be pushed into ministry, but also to assess the ministry you currently have. This gets down to the the root of your being before the Lord. This goes beyond what you do down to why you do it. This goes past how you do it to, to what's compelling you to do it. And Jesus says, do you love me? He says to Peter, love my people, shepherd my people and show your love for me. Essentially what he's saying, I've done this for you and the other apostles throughout my ministry. I've been your shepherd, right? That's what he says in in, uh, John uh, chapter 10. He says, I've I've shepherded you and I'm going to deliver you safely home. And now he's saying, I'm going to leave and be absent. And and in my physical absence, I'm giving that job to you now. You take up the reins and, and you shepherd my people. You feed my flock like I fed you spiritual food and and protected you from spiritual harm, and guided you through all the spiritual dark valleys. Peter, I'm leaving, and now I'm handing the baton to you. You, my under-shepherd, shepherd my people. Notice that this is a verb and not a noun. He does not say to Peter, go be a shepherd. Peter, go hold the office of a shepherd. Go be a pastor. Go hold the position in the church of, of pastor, he says, Go shepherd my people. Go feed my flock. It's ongoing, unending, active ministry within the church. It's not about position or power or authority. It's about loving Christ and loving his church. Go shepherd my sheep. And notice that it's not Peter's flock, it's not Peter's domain or his dominion, it's Christ's flock. And he's being entrusted with this care by Christ Himself. Love me by taking care of my people, of my flock. This is so clarifying for all who will shepherd in Christ's church. 
And notice that Peter is so well qualified for shepherding because he is now humble and broken, having had the ladder of his pride knocked down and now laying flat on the ground of reality, he has lost the, the spiritual swagger of self-confidence. And he now walks with a limp from his very public sin. And, and apparently in the mind of Jesus, this qualifies him perfectly to be a shepherd in his church. You see, the best pastors are those who are the most aware of the forgiveness they've received from their Savior are most humbled by the reality of their own sinfulness and are so caught up in the love of God for them. The greatest qualification for shepherding God's people is not a sense of calling. It's not an understanding of giftedness. It's not a developed skill in that you become a better pastor through years of developing a skill. No, the greatest qualifier to being a shepherd in Christ's church is a deep awareness of God's forgiveness, which fuels a deep love for Christ, which compels this shepherding ministry minute by minute, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, loving Christ and loving His people, aware of how humbly and mercifully you've been rescued by the Savior. Christ also tells Peter the truth about where this life of loving service to his sheep is going to lead Peter. He tells him in verses 18 and 19 that this is going to lead to your martyrdom. You're going to die if you do this. Thanks, Lord. Appreciate that. Thanks for being honest. I mean, at least that's good, right? He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't tell you, hey, this is going to be a life of ease and, and success, and it's going to be amazing, and I'll deliver you safely home, and nothing bad will happen. And it just simply says to Peter in verses 18 and 19, listen, you're going you're gonna to go to your death not according to your will. When you were young, you got to decide where you were going to go. You got to decide what you were going to wear. When you're old, because you're shepherding my people, you're going to be taken and not be able to determine what to wear, and you're going to have your hands spread out, which was a euphemism in the early church for you're going to be crucified. And you're going to go against your will, which, by the way, martyrdom is, should always be against the will of the one being martyred. Nobody wants to be martyred. It's not a, a delight or a good thing in the human realm. But as appointed by God, it's a good thing for His purposes, and it brings ultimate glory to Him. And so He says to him, this is the, the way you're going to die. And John interprets that and says, He spoke to him of his death, whereby he would glorify God. So Peter, here's the deal. Do you love me? Yes. Then follow me. As you follow me, feed and tend my sheep. As you feed and tend my sheep, you must know this is going to end up with your death for me. It's a hard and a narrow way. Few there be who find it, but it leads to eternal joy. So Peter, follow me. Isn't it comforting to know that our Savior knows the path and the conclusion of every one of our lives? That He's numbered every one of our days, and as we follow Him, He works out that plan in accord with His grace and mercy and in line with His eternal wisdom. It ought to be a comfort to you, brother and sister, today that, that though you don't know your end, Jesus already does. 
And if that's on the way home in a car accident, or if that's in 50 years and you die of old age, or anything in between, He knows that right now, and you don't on purpose. Because it would be terrible if you knew. Right? It would be awful if you knew how your life was going to end. You'd be so caught up with preventing it or finding a different way if you didn't like how it was going to go or living frivolously until the day before or whatever it is. You would be miserable. You'd be a bad Christian if you knew the moment and the way of your end. But it is an unspeakable consolation to remember, as J.C. Ryle says, that our whole future is known and forearranged by Christ. He goes on to say, there's no such thing as luck, chance, or accident in the journey of our life. Everything from beginning to end is foreseen, arranged by one who is too wise to err and is too loving to do us harm. So he says to Peter, this is how you're going to die, and he knows how you're going to die. When you're going to die. What's going to cause it. How painful or painless it's going to be. He knows the end from the beginning, and he can be trusted. Be consoled by your Savior this morning. But it's also instructive to see that Peter's death would bring glory to God. That him dying this way would, would magnify God. I think believers in the room this morning desire to live in such a way as to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think you live with that motto stapled over the eyes of your life. You assess your decisions and your words and your actions and your workplace and all you do with that motto over your head, do I live to the glory of God? You're not perfect, but you're trying. Praise God. But beloved, expand the boundaries of bringing glory to God past this life and, and expand it to your death. I think we too, think too small about how we might bring honor to God through our final days or moments or minutes. If we would die well, clinging faithfully as, as Standfast did as he stood in the Jordan River in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. As other believers tried to go across the river and some went underwater for quite a time and he helped them get back up on their feet. In other words, they wavered in their faith in their final minutes of life. But Standfast stood there in the river firm with his feet firmly planted in the Lord knowing that whenever his moment came, he would be absent from the body and present with the Lord, that death would be gain and life would be to Christ. And his death glorified God. Peter's death glorified God. So too can yours. In fact, some Christians bring more glory to God in their death than they ever could in their life. Because by their death, the name and renown of God is known more broadly and more clearly in a lost and dying world than at any other time. And maybe that neighbor or that coworker or that family member who's resistant to you in life will become soft to you in your death and will be open to hear of your Savior because they see that you die well. Therefore, like Peter, die to the glory of God Live to the glory of God. Prepare yourself for that moment when you will take your final breath and determine now to cling in faith to the one who will welcome you home. 
and determine that in those final moments you will make much of Christ? This is a compelling question. Do you love me, Peter, in life and in death? It's also a clarifying question. We see that in verses 20 to 23. Peter and Jesus are walking and Peter turns around and sees the Apostle John following them. John gives you the details in verse 20 of of that situation in the upper room where he leaned back and asked Jesus, who who is it that's going to betray you? He tells you that so that you know that John knows Jesus and John knows Peter. He tells you that so, so you can know that Peter is close to both Jesus and John and John is close to both Jesus and Peter. Which is why he's following. He, he wants to know what's going on. He's persistent to see what happens with Peter and Jesus. As I read Peter's question, what about this man? I, I read it with sympathy and brotherly concern. You might read it with a bit of, I don't know, comparison, frustration, maybe a little bit of spite, as is prone of brothers in the Lord. Well, that's going to happen to me, Lord. What about that guy? What's going to be his end, Lord? I don't read it that way. I read it as a a question of brotherly concern, and I could be wrong. I don't know. It's Peter concerned for John. If I'm going to die a martyr's death, what's going to happen to him? What does Jesus say to him? Well, here's how it's going to go for John. He essentially says, Peter, that doesn't matter to you. You follow me. Peter, best case scenario, he stays alive until I come again. And he doesn't have to die like you're going to have to die. Even if that happens, what is that to you? Leave it. To me, this is a trap that we all get caught in as we follow Christ, isn't it? So we lovingly serve our Lord, and as things maybe get harder for us than it seems to be for others, it's easy for us to look around and see their lives and say to our Lord, What about them? I mean, really, Lord? You see this, right? What about that person? What's going to happen with, with them? We like to mix our love for the Lord with. Comparison to others, but you have to know those ingredients never make a nutritious spiritual meal. Those two things never combine together to to bless your soul. We need not know nor be concerned with the sovereign plans and purposes of God as it relates to the future of others. It would not have helped Peter to know that in a persecution in Ephesus, John would get thrown into a cauldron of scalding oil and be forever deformed until his dying day. That wouldn't have helped Peter follow Jesus. It wouldn't have helped Peter to know that John would be exiled by the Roman emperor to the Isle of Patmos, where he would die in isolation and seclusion. That wouldn't have helped Peter to know anything about that as he sought to follow Christ. How Jesus orders the lives of his other servants is of no consequence upon our discipleship. Whether they live or die, suffer or succeed, we are to follow Jesus because we love Him. So Jesus says to Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. Notice the humor in verse 23 of the rumor mill in the first century church. It's a little comforting to know that they had this problem as we do. 
that, that they heard the report that Jesus had said to John or to Peter about John, that if I let him live until I come again, what's that to you? And they took that to mean John was never going to die. In fact, there was a, a rumor that went past John's death that said he was alive in the tomb, waiting for Jesus to come back. That, that's how fierce this rumor was. So John finishes the letter to let you know in verse 23, listen, that is not what Jesus said. He wants them to know when I die, because I'm about to, don't doubt that Jesus is soon returning. This rumor was fueled by people losing sight of the central question, do you love Jesus? We want to know things we're not supposed to know, and we fail to delve deeper to know the things we must know. And this fuels the, the rumor mill among us where we talk about things that really don't matter and that we don't need to know. And we fail to give attention to things that we really must give attention to. Things that really matter, like, do you love Jesus? And are you serving Him in His church? And then I want you to see this is a Christ-magnifying question. Do you love me? We see that in the last two verses of John's Gospel. He ends his recounting of Jesus' life and of His work with that affirmation of trustworthiness in verse 24. He says, I, I want you to know everything I've written is, is trustworthy. And he finally lets us know that he's the one who's the beloved disciple who wrote this account. He's the one who leaned back against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper and asked, who is it that's going to betray you? He's the beloved disciple. And he wants you to know his gospel is verified by the Spirit of God. This editorial we, the author and the witness of the Spirit and the witness of the other apostles, everything said here is trustworthy and true. But John can't finish his letter at the end of verse 24. He's not going to finish his letter focused on himself. He shifts again to the Christ-magnifying statement of verse 25. Saying that Jesus did so many other things that if they were written, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written down. In other words, what he's saying is there's infinite glory in the person and work of Jesus. So much so that books could be written constantly and the world could be filled with all of those books and we still would not exhaust the infinite glory and worthiness of this Jesus. And this is a fitting conclusion to the prologue, don't you think? Where we heard that the Word was, was with God and the Word was God and that everything that is in existence is in existence because the Word called it into existence. There's not anything that exists that he did not speak into existence. Therefore, His glory is infinite as the universe is big, called into existence by His power. Now John says His life and ministry display that infinite glory. This one who came as flesh and gave Himself as a sinless sacrifice to ransom lost sinners, to make us right with the Father, to give us victory over death through His resurrection, to then see Him ascend to the right hand of the Father and to soon return to judge the living and the dead. That, Jesus, John says, is infinitely worthy of glory and honor and of love. This is of utmost importance to your soul this morning. This is a Christ-exalting question. 
Is this true? Is this the Jesus you know? The Jesus of verse 25? The one that, that you barely know, a, a drop in the ocean of his glory? The one whom when you enter into your eternal joy, you'll enter into a, a paradise of the knowledge of the glory of God that will be so immense, so vast, so unending, that you from that moment into an unending moment, forever and ever, will be expanding your comprehension of the glory of God as seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Is that the Jesus you love? And if you love that Jesus, then aren't you compelled, as he said earlier, to, to serve him and to glorify him in life and in death? May God help us. Let's pray together. Merciful God, we praise you for the truth and the power of your word by your spirit to convict our wayward souls and confront our apathetic hearts, to encourage our faltering love and to strengthen the weak knees of our life of faith. Father, we pray that you would do that through this text for your church. I ask, Lord, that you especially would bring this text to bear upon the soul that does not yet know this love for them through your Son. Would you bring them to saving faith in Christ alone, to your glory alone? Father, would you help us as we go our way from not just this day, but also this gospel, to not leave behind the lessons you've taught us from these texts? as we have been changed from one image of glory into another, we pray, Lord, that you would continue that process in each of our hearts and lives till the day we die and enter into paradise with you. So, Lord, would you move us along for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.